Hey listeners, today we are delighted to host Kelly Rossman McKinney. It would be an understatement to say that you are one of the most impressive and inspiring communicators we've ever met, and we cannot wait to dive into our conversation about your journey and even hear some thoughts about work-life balance. The Speakeasy Podcast, honest conversations about leadership and sanity in the creative industry. I'm Karen Steffel. And I'm Jen Estel. Managing creativity and business, we probably have an opinion on that. No prohibitions. Clearly, we have cocktails. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of our discussion, I really want to talk about our mocktail today. It's really, really pretty. It's called the London Fog. Jen, why don't you tell us about it? This is beautiful. It's made with Earl Grey tea, which Kelly said she's a fan of, as well as you and I. Mm -hmm. And we've got some lavender infused in here with just a hint of vanilla and some milk, and it's just delightful. Mm -hmm. I love it. What do you think, Kelly? Well, it beats the crap out of Lipton, that's for sure. It's delicious. There's just a drop of vanilla at the bottom of the mug, and I feel like it tastes like a macaroon. Oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. It's delicious. So, Jen, <laughs> we're with Kelly Rossman McKinney. How I, lucky are we? I know. We're pretty lucky. And, I, Kelly, I have to tell you a story. I didn't, I didn't tell you this when we were um, oh, planning Lord. for the episode, but when I was a wee little thing, I want to say I was 22 or 23, at my previous agency, I remember my boss had a clipping from the newspaper and he stuck it on the, the cork board and he said, that's Kelly Rossman. She's the competition. Damn, she's good. <laughs> and it's the first time I'd ever heard your name. I didn't know who you were. And I immediately went, I, I fell in love and thought, I need to know who that is because he was so in awe. And it was a boss I respected, and I just learned so much of that agency. But um, his tone of voice when he said how much he respected you and thought of you as the competition really set in my mind that that must be it. That's making it right there. Ah, that's a very nice story. Was there a dartboard around my picture? <laughs> there was a dartboard. I didn't want to tell you that part. <laughs> Not surprised at all. <laughs> that's the competition. <laughs> that's very nice. And I so I really appreciate it. I love that more than 20 years later, like you're able to still relish in that. That that's a very framing conversation for you. It was it's just such a funny moment because I remember the little hallway we were in with the Herman Miller cubes and what everything looked like and the people who were standing around. It must have been some uh, some piece of work you had done, or I, I don't know even what some it was. Some piece of work. Some crazy <laughs> piece of work, but he was impressed and everybody was watching. Oh, that's great. That's that was, a great story. That was the first time I heard your name. And ever since, we have all been watching you do amazing things in our market and in our state for forever. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Forever? Okay, for as long as you've been around, That's yes. true, perhaps. <laughs> oh, I love it. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, and I think we have a lot in common, even though we all have different paths in professional communications. You know, we have we have Old Town as our business roots in common, right. certainly. Right. Um, EC3 Mothers. That's true. At exactly. different times. And, um, and certainly being business owners. Well, ab absolutely. And, you know, my office for many years was just two blocks north of here. I think the office totally has moved five times since I first started, which was at my kitchen table, literally. When I started my first business in 88, fax machines were just starting to come into vogue. Mm -hmm. Cell phones really weren't around for another year or two, and even when they did come out, they weren't cell. They were mobile phones, and they weren't that mobile. They were the size of a good car battery, and you lugged it around. And so, so the aspects, the tools of our trade have changed substantially over the years. 
substantially. But the work we do, which is identifying the message, delivering the message, identifying your target audiences, all of that is the same. The only thing that's really changed are the tools and the way you deploy those tools. When I started in 88, there was really only one full-time PR firm, and it was um, uh, Publicom. It was headed by a guy, uh, guy by the name of David Hayhow. And um, I tried to get a job there, not once, not twice, but three different times, and never got hired. So it also shows that, you know, you have to have perseverance, because despite the fact that I never got hired there, I started my own PR firm and didn't remember when I was starting my firm that, wait, the biggest PR firm in town didn't hire me. What the heck do I think I'm doing? And here we all are. Exactly. Some form of being the boss, right? Exactly. Well, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, i got to tell you, being the boss, although it sounds cool, I'm sure both of you would admit it's really a crappy job a lot <laughs> of the time. That's kind of what our podcast because is about. Because when, you, yeah, when you're the boss... You're no longer doing primarily what you started your business to do. Right. You're now managing the business. And I don't know about you, but I never took a business class in my life. Nope. And I spent a lot of time learning hard lessons because I didn't know business. Now, I learned from great people, mm-hmm. but, but those are the mistakes that I really remember. You know, I had a business partner at one time, Roger Martin. He left the firm. Boy, did I learn some lessons there. I mean, you just learn. They do leave an impression, <laughs> you know, those, those little scars that you get along the way. What do you think are some of the hardest lessons that you've had to learn along the way, whether that's been in um, the iterations of your PR agency or or other things? Oh, hardest lessons. Well, really, the lesson that sticks with me the most is how hard it is to grow and manage growth, that that is much harder than managing downsizing. Downsizing is hard. Emotionally Uh, hard. Emotionally hard. You have to make hard decisions that impact other people's lives. But managing growth... Um, can be a real challenge in a couple of ways. When you're an entrepreneur, you like to kind of know everything that's going on in your business. And as your business grows, you have to eventually come to accept the fact that you don't know every little thing about your business. And it took me, no kidding, literally years to become comfortable with that. And you know, that's after, not only did I have um, a couple of different iterations of my own firm, but but when John Truscott and I joined forces in 2011, we did so specifically to build a statewide organization, not really fully appreciating how hard it is to run a shop in Detroit and in Grand Rapids and not physically be there all the time and have people who you trust, who know what they're doing, and then be willing to let go. And I'm a terrible person when it comes to letting go. I don't do it very well. And I think that's a trait a lot of women have. And and I say that because I've had a lot of female clients and they're the biggest nitpickers I've seen, and I think it's because we so closely identify with our business as a business. We don't 
detach ourselves from our business. And it's hard to do. It took me a really long time to be comfortable with that. It's interesting that you say that because I find that as well. And not only detaching from the, the business, but getting to the point where you realize someone that you've hired might at a certain point be more skilled at something than you are. And so when I started my business, I felt like I know the things. I know what I need to do here, 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 here. But then as you grow, new skills evolve, new parameters come to play, and someone else might be a little bit more skilled in that arena. So not only do you have to let go, you have to acknowledge that they might have a better idea than you. And so I think that can be a challenge too. Well, it is. But I, I got to tell you, social media to me was the great equalizer in my world. And that was that suddenly we had student interns who knew more about something than I did. And I was more than willing to go down the hall to where they were to say, show me how to do this. So how does a career change when you go from pagers and fax machines, which is where we were in the late 80s and early 90s, yeah. to social media? And just the speed of it all, right? How, how has communications changed in your experience over that course of time? You know, first of all, I liken it to um, what my grandfather's generation went through in terms of transportation. When he grew up, it was walking or horse and buggy. And before he died he saw a man on the moon, walking on the moon. And so the communications um, changes that we've seen, I try really hard to embrace the way my grandfather embraced changes in transportation. And rather than be like, oh, God darn it, one more thing, my grandfather would always say, well, my goodness. And so I try to take that approach. And the changes are gradual enough that it's not like suddenly you go from a rotary dial crank on the wall phone to an I-8. You're, you know, you're going one step at a time. And as a reluctant digital immigrant, which I am, I can still sort of jump on the bandwagon a little bit. So it's not hard. It is expensive to stay on top of that stuff. As a business person, you have to invest a lot of money and make sure you're investing your money in the right way. How would you translate kind of embracing that change? Our last podcast was about change and seasons of change. But how, how could you equate embracing that change and how the tools have changed with a much more um, higher level view of how you embrace change in your career? Well, I'm a change addict. I like, um, I like new things. I am totally comfortable in a new environment. So I never think of change as something you have to adjust to. I view it as just something you do. And in the last less than a year, I went from the CEO of the largest PR firm in the state. I retired. I ran for office. And... It was just constant change. I mean, all of that is to say that um, if you're freaked out by change, man, this is the wrong life to be leading. I mean, the kind of work we do, you have to constantly be on top of things. And I look at the change on our side of the ledger, and I think of all the change that reporters who I work with day in and day out have had to adapt to. So they have to, and I see friends of mine who are, um, posting stories at 6 a.m. Who gets up at 6 a.m.? I mean, I used to when I had kids, but who does that now? And they're posting stories 
from 6 in the morning until 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. They're trying to beat the competition. Their work is dramatically different, and it's changed so much in terms of the environment in which they're working. So every time I think, oh, man, I can't get a hand on this, I look at, you know, the kids over on the journalism side, and I think, well, if they can do it, Mama's got this. <laughs> if, they, if they can handle it, I can, exactly. I can figure it out. Exactly. Yeah, you've seen a lot of change. I'm really curious to hear your story about what made you decide to run and kind of what you're doing now, which is so different than what you were doing maybe a decade ago. So I decided to run. I got approached to run for state senate in the 24th district, which is Eaton, Clinton, and Shiawassee County, and then the northeast corner of Ingham, which is kind of Williamston area. And initially, I was flattered. I thought, oh, that's nice. And I know how difficult a political life can be. I've worked for politicians. I know it's a terrible lifestyle. But I also felt like I had really done everything I wanted to do in my PR career, that I'd seen the organization grow, and I was really comfortable with the place it was. And I, I didn't want to become complacent. I wanted to still be relevant and to do new things. And it just seemed like a cool, fun idea. And frankly, I was really disappointed in who was representing me in the legislature, both in the House and the Senate. So I retired and I ran and I was first runner up in the, <laughs> in the general. And, you know, I was really glad I did it. I had all kinds of misadventures. I fell down a flight of stairs um, coming down somebody's second floor flat um, on a rainy day. Oh, no. Oh, that's just an ass wipeout. What are you going to do, you know? <laughs> and then um, I somehow broke my foot, stress fracture from walking door to door. So I had a, a boot on my foot for about six weeks. And then three days for the election, I got bit by the meanest dog in all of Shiawassee County. Oh, my. So it took a toll, mm -hmm. but I loved doing it. I met so many cool people, and I had such a wonderful time. So I was just starting to rest. Like, this is the Thursday after the election, and uh, AG-elect Dana Nessel called me. Wow. And she'd been a, a client of mine a couple years ago, and she asked me if I'd help and sit on the transition team. And I thought, well, yeah, I can sit on the transition team. That won't be hard. And it became a very um, demanding, all-consuming, absolutely exhilarating, exciting thing to do. And she asked me if I wanted to stay, and I was like, ah, no. She asked me if I wanted to stay, and I was like, ah, no. <laughs> No, and then I realized how much <laughs> fun I was having, and I thought, what would what what else would I do? Really, I love going back to my roots, media relations, and I love not being the boss. Huh. It's weird having a boss to suddenly say I got to check with the boss. Yeah, I can't imagine that's like that. a new thing for me. Like, I got to talk to the boss. And then I think, I'm not the boss. How cool so is that? Is that exciting or frustrating or a little bit of both? Or does it just feel like a huge weight off? Well, a couple of things. It is a huge weight off for anyone who's a business owner. Mm -hmm. 
You know what it's like, especially on Sunday night. Sunday nights, every business owner I know can't fall asleep on Sunday night. Every business owner I know. And that's because you're worried about the next week. You're worried about money coming in. You're worried about money going out. You're worried about deadline. I mean, you're just, being a business owner is being in a constant heightened sense state of Worriness. Yeah. Not to mention if you're a mom at the same time whose kids are still at home. So you've got that additional. Can I just burden. take a moment to thank you because it feels really good and validating to hear that from oh someone else. Oh my God, else. it's just, no, <laughs> seriously. I don't think business owners talk enough about how challenging it is. Business owners really get portrayed as this sort of brutal, um, insensitive class of folks when my experience is just the opposite. Yeah. I don't know a business owner who doesn't agonize over tough decisions that they know will impact someone's life. I don't know a business owner who doesn't agonize over decisions like, can I afford to invest in this new piece of equipment? You know, you you just do, well, I'm now in a job where I don't really have to worry about any of it, and it's quite freeing. And I don't mind not being the boss. I love being in a, a really collaborative setting where there are a bunch of us who are equals, except um, my colleague David Knizek, who's government affairs director, he and I are the only non-attorneys on mm-hmm. the executive team. And we're reminded of that constantly because sometimes we have no idea what everybody else is talking about. But I don't, I don't worry. I don't make the hard decisions anymore. I, I tell other people about the decisions we've made. Though in some ways your experience as a business owner and the person who stays up late on Sunday night worrying probably really helps you inform and serve the AG's office because that is her job to worry about all of Michigan. Well, that yes, I, I think that's right. And there's something to be said. And to me, this is a real healthy reminder of the role of PR as the conscience of an organization. And, and so my role often is to say, not just what are we doing, but help me understand why we're doing it. What is the impact? Is this the right thing to do? I would imagine, too, um, when you're surrounded by attorneys, and you're not the attorney in the room, that they have to be incredibly grateful for the questions that you ask navigating. Because if they can't explain it to you, how are you going to explain it to others? <laughs> I hope they're listening. No. <laughs> well, you know, we view our role as translators. And it it is hard to, you know, push back and say, okay, what does that mean? And we use the, I, I say we use the Aunt B rule. Does Aunt B understand it? And if I don't understand it, how am I going to be able to tell it to anybody else? Sure, sure. Absolutely. You know, so it is. You're basically in our comm shop, and Dan Olson, who's a member of CMPRSA as well, he's on our team. We just recruited a young woman who was a student of mine at Grand Valley State. She starts full-time in May, but she's already on board part-time. And we've got, you know, our job. We view our job as translators. And then, of course, they're the social media gurus. And I just say, um, can you make that look pretty? <laughs> we put that on and make it look pretty. I think what's really great, though, that even though you're being modest and, and or self-deprecating, the, like the standards that you're going to hold to communicate something to the public doesn't change just because the tool is social media. No, no you're so right. So you're still the, teaching them. Oh, yeah. The standards are, in my opinion, higher 
because you're in a um, we're in an environment that is legal and everything we do and say sure. can be problematic um, if I use the wrong word. I mean, for PR folks, for example, it was one of my many learnable or coachable moments where I was being coached. And that is, I would never think twice about saying, oh, yeah, we're investigating that. Well, in the AG's office, if you say that, you're talking about a real honest-to-God investigation. It's sure. like a thing. You don't throw the word around. So from a PR perspective... It took me several weeks to realize, oh, wait, hey, this is a whole new gig. I get it. Fun. It's kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So you don't have to pitch the story. This, it is a story automatically. Right, right. I haven't had to pitch anything in a while. Yeah, I hope I don't lose my moxie on that. Yeah. I, I don't think you will. That's <laughs> just a guess. So. I don't think so. I like what you said earlier, too, about, you know, in your PR world, you had accomplished everything you wanted to accomplish. You felt like you got there with Truscott Rosman, and it was time for the next thing. I don't know, like, that seems like a pretty good feeling, feeling like you made it. That's, that feels like a really big high five. Yeah, you got your oh, to-do list you. done. Okay, well, you know, part of it was that, and part of it was, oh, this is sad. Oh. You know, because you don't want to be at a plateau. Sure. You don't want to be at a point where you're like, eh, it's not exciting anymore. But so it was kind of getting to that point where eh, I feel like I've really done. You know, I'm starting to look at stuff and I'm, you know, I'm working on some of the same things I've worked on for a long time. And I just felt like it was time for me to do something new and for new blood in the company. And Trescott was wonderful. He was incredibly supportive amazingly so. And we worked really hard to find someone who could kind of step in at my level, a guy by the name of Ron Fournier, who was um, the publisher of Crane's Detroit Business. My biggest disappointment was our inability to find a woman who was really in the right place at the right time to come in. That was a disappointment to me. Um, and, and I blame myself that I didn't mentor enough women. On the other hand, I look at the women I've mentored, and they're all in really good places getting paid lots of money by clients we used to serve. So I feel like, okay, maybe I did do a good job. Yeah. I guess the, how do I, how do I even phrase this? The landscape for women feels different than it was. Oh, heck yeah. And you've seen a, you've seen a wide variety of landscape and you've seen your own brouhaha about being a woman in the industry, having names hurled at you, having people not believe what you say. Is it the same now as it was, or not so much? Well, when I first started my firm, there were very few women business owners, period, regardless of what the industry is. So it, it was, maybe novelty is too strong a word, but I, I believe that you take advantage of everything that sets you apart from your competitors. And so to me, being a woman-owned business, I'll use that. Mm -hmm. I'll use that all day long if it helps get me in the door. The things that I see changing, and it's not so much business as it is maybe cultural or generational. When I um, was first working, it was so hard to get out of a meeting to pick up a kid from daycare and to say, <laughs> gotta go. I've got a childcare commitment. Keep in mind, I was a single mom most of the time I was running a business. Now, 
um, it's a badge of honor, uh, both for men and women, to say, hey, got to go, got a soccer game. That has changed immensely. Even things like um, daycare centers and after-school care. My oldest son is 40. They had none of that when I first started my business. And now it's prolific, which is wonderful because you don't, I mean, part of the stress of being a working mom was figuring out the logistics of where does your kid go when you have an 8 a.m. meeting and school doesn't start till 8.30. I think, goodness, for all the women early in my career who were stay-at-home moms and welcomed my son in as, you know, their, their kid after school or their kid before school, because how else do you do it? Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I, I look back and I don't know how I did it. Figuring out the logistics is still complicated, but we have access to more resources right. to manage those logistics. There is before and after school care. I've, my goodness, I don't know what I would do without MSU having a, a nice pool of sitters. And yeah, like yeah you know, the best situation we ever, we ever um, came across came as a result of my speaking to a PR class at MSU. And it was one of those big lecture classes. And there's a line of students coming up and talking to me afterwards. And one of the young women said, you mentioned you have three kids, and I'm a nanny uh, during the summer, and usually I'm in Chicago, but I'm staying in um, Michigan this summer. So we hired her. And then for the next, I want to say, five or six years straight, we had her and then one of her roommates and then her roommate's sisters. So we had this whole group of girls who knew my kids. Mm -hmm. They could drive. They could take the kids swimming at MSU. I mean, my kids were in seventh heaven. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was a wonderful thing. And, you know, working moms, it's hard. It, it is just hard. is. You know, and, and let me just dispel the myth that there's work-life balance. I was just going to ask just you that. Total bull. <laughs> total bull. I don't know who said it, but it's... It's work-life balance is like a teeter-totter. And I'm one of those people who I think is blessed with being able to compartmentalize. So I don't think of my kids if I'm at work. I try really hard not to think about work when I'm with my kids. I'm not nearly as successful as that. <laughs> but the bottom line is you're giving your all at work, and so your family's out of balance. And then you're giving your all with your family, and your work's out of balance. It's not a balance. It's like a teeter-totter going back and forth. Mm -hmm. And to imply to anyone that you can have a work-life balance, I think, is so unfair, so unreasonable, and it creates an expectation that, frankly, cannot be met. Well, we've we've done some podcasts about that, and I think we used teeter-totter and, like, roller coaster. What if we used roller coaster? And you even talked about um, surfing. You know, the surf comes in and out, and if you're standing on the board, you have to do these micro-adjustments so that you don't fall. And I feel like maybe I would just drown. <laughs> it all sounds like a pretty much a barfable moment, right? <laughs> I mean, seriously. Well, that's that's the interesting thing about being a working mother, and the interesting thing about being an entrepreneur is no one tells you at the beginning all these little details, that there is no balance. You are constantly worried. Sunday nights you don't sleep. You know, the things that you've outlined today, 
Well, you wouldn't do it if somebody told you. <laughs> I feel the same is true about pregnancy. It's not until after you become pregnant that all of your friends with children go, oh, just wait. <laughs> it's like, why didn't you tell me that before? How because horrible. the population would die out. That's yes. why they don't tell you. You know, it's funny. When I look at when I started my business, I had no insurance. I had like an eight-year-old son who was prone to falling down. I had no <laughs> insurance. I mean, this, the PR firm in town hadn't hired me. I mean, really, what was I thinking? What do you have to lose at that point? Well, I had a really good job. I quit a really good job. I had a great job with the state, believe it or not. And I quit. And I look back and think, uh, you know, I realize I didn't tell my folks until after I did it. They live out of state, and I'm sure... I did that so they wouldn't talk me out of it. Do you remember what made you decide to open your shop? There was a guy by the name of Ned Hubble, who's the PRSSA chapter at MSU is named after. And Ned kind of took me under his wing, and he kept telling me that um, I should join PRSA, I should get accredited. And then he kind of just, he kept saying, you can do this. And I was at a point in state government where I, I was at a dead end, I didn't see that there was any state job I wanted. And so I sat down and I had coffee with like 20 or 30 different people. And two of them said, you should do that PR thing you do. And I didn't even think I did a PR thing. So that's the only <laughs> advice I heard. I could not tell you what anybody else you know, I'm sure a couple of people said, oh, write it out. You'll yeah. be fine. There'll be something <laughs> else. You're a working mom. You need the job. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think when you're an entrepreneur and you are uh, risk tolerant to whatever degree you're risk tolerant, you kind of um, aren't afraid of the things that, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And those things don't scare you because you don't know. <laughs> you figure it out. Yeah. I used to say risk averse, and I think it is more risk tolerant. That it's not that you're averse to risk, that you're, I think it's more that you're immune to risk. You know, really, if life weren't risky, where would the fun in it be? We'd right? be frozen. Yeah, it would be <laughs> so <laughs> dull. Well, since there isn't any work-life balance, my, so, you know, Jen and I were, um, one of the things we were so excited uh, to talk to you about yes. is, you know, you... You are our crystal ball. You, you could give us your wisdom. <laughs> oh, what would us. you like to know? So if, you know, if... Grasshopper. What, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly-san. Um, what, what should mid-career women business owners be thinking about? Um, we should be thinking about over the next 10 or 15 years. What would you recommend that we let oh, go gosh. of? Gosh. Or you not know, suffer? I don't remember ever pondering a lot. I'm not one of those people who ponders. I'm very intuitive, kind of instinctive. I'm not uh, like a long-term planner. I don't say, oh, in five years, I'm going to be this. That's just not my nature. But I do think that there's merit in looking at who you want to be like and who you admire and what you admire about them. Sure. That uh, makes sense. There was a woman years ago in my career, her name was Beth Belter, and she owned a firm called PR Associates. And it wasn't until after I started my PR firm that I even realized that I was emulating her. Huh. And I had done it so instinctively mm -hmm. that I hadn't 
It wasn't like I said, I'm going to be like Beth Belter. But I had admired her so much that I, um, I think by osmosis, I sort of did things the way she must have done them. And I learned from her. One of the things I learned was how to build an exit strategy. Because when she left her firm and retired, she didn't really have much of an exit strategy. And as a result, the firm kind of floundered. Well, that, that wasn't what I wanted to do. And it's hard to figure out that exit strategy, especially when you're in your 40s. In my 40s, I was barely starting a savings account, much less think an exit strategy. But at some point, you have to say, you know, where is this going to go? None of my kids wanted it. They were like, oh, I had an internship there, Mom. I'm good. <laughs> it served its purpose. <laughs> so your advice is to look at people who have done it well that you would like to emulate or look at people who have maybe shown you a gap and figure out how to avoid the gap? Yeah, I mean, think about the people you admire and why you admire them. And, and you know, I just, I think when something sparks your interest, follow that. It doesn't have to be a linear path. I mean, if something sort of pops up, I mean, never in a million years did I think I'd come back to state government. I was a recovering state employee for 30 <laughs> years. It never dawned on me I'd come back. But it's one of the coolest jobs I've ever had. Yeah. So, you know, just kind of be open to possibilities. That's probably the best advice, being open to possibilities and never close any door. Fair enough. I love that. How about burning a bridge? Can I do that? No. <laughs> no, no, no. Burning bridges is so tempting. Oh, my gosh, it's so tempting. But in this town in particular, it's a very small town. So you try very hard not to burn bridges. It's not even a good idea to singe them. Um, I try very, very, very hard to um, not get too upset and not take things too personally. I mean, sometimes you have to. Like when your senator calls you a hooker, which you sort of alluded to before. Mm -hmm. Now, that was eight years ago, but, you know, I didn't take that lying down, so to speak. And you just, you get a pipe for yourself, right? Yeah. Gosh, I remember that when that happened. That was, that, that eight made some years good ago. news. It's so hard to believe. Yeah. Eight years ago. And, um, you know, that was kind of before the Me Too movement and all of that. But this is, you know, for those who don't know, it's my state senator in a news release compared me to a hooker and said that in a news release and distributed it in a news release. Which seems incredibly obviously not the thing to do. Yeah, one well, would think. Not only that, but how many other people could have said, mm, maybe no, consider not. actually several people did say don't do that. And he did, and it, he anyway. did it on his own, yeah. And I don't know whether he expected me not to fight back but, you know, I fought back and it ended up being, it was kind of ridiculous. It was like a 12-day story of, he called her a hooker. She said, she's not a hooker. I mean, it was kind of ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I had friends. It was a really interesting experience. I had friends who picked up the phone and pulled sponsorships from legislators for events because of what had happened. And then I had other friends call me, begging me to make it go away because I was making their job so hard. Oh, sorry. And I remember that. 
And then you realized who your friends were. Well, you do. You do. You're like, huh, really? Okay. All right. I remember that. Well, my memory <laughs> of that is that you handled it with grace and made it look like such a nuisance. Not, not a nuisance in the way that, I, I guess, just, a, just made it look like, why are we having this ridiculous conversation? And also, let's talk about this ridiculous conversation. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks. I'm glad you remember it that way. It got brought up when I was running for office. It got brought up. I mean, it was, it's, it's brutal. For those who consider running for office, make sure you have really thick skin. And make sure you warn your kids to stay off social media because my kids and my husband were so incensed when they, you know, attacks are typical. They hated sure. seeing it. You know, there was, we ran an ad about when I was a single mom. And uh, having to, um, you know, I scrounged around for deposit bottles so I could exchange them for, you know, cash to buy diapers. I mean, I was that, you know, kind of paycheck to paycheck. And somebody posted on Facebook, why were you a single mother? Like, what does that have to do with anything? Really? (laughs) Really? Do you really want to go there? And my kids were incensed. Of course they were. Yeah. But me, I was like, really? That's your life? What That's was, where you got to go? What was the thing that you learned the most out of the, uh, out of the process of running for office that surprised you? Something that you learned about yourself or learned about... Oh, that's you know, a good question. You've been entrenched in politics for years. It seems like there shouldn't be anything lying under a rock you didn't know. But what did, you, what did that process teach you? What I think what I, I learned was how how important it was to sit down and talk with people, how important it is to go door to door, all of which I know, but I hadn't gone door to door in a long time and I've never been the candidate. And I was amazed at how grateful people were that you were taking the time to stop by and talk to them. And um, that just reminded me of the power of, that voters really have. But it was, I think, the fact that people were so willing to help me, it was amazing. People were willing to write checks. They were willing to go door to door. I mean, they were really eager to help, and that amazed me. And I was, I, I continue to be grateful for everything people did. And as, as hard as it was, I'm watching friends of mine who won their election cycles and I realized that the hard work really just began when they took office. So I may get to the office at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I may not leave till 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night, but I'm in my office. I'm pretty much in control of my whole day, and you know I know what I'm doing every single minute. I don't have to... Um, I don't have to be on the road. It's the first time in a really long time that I'm not out of the office very much at all. And um, I'm finding that I really like a sedentary life. I'm kind of enjoying <laughs> sitting in my chair at my computer most of the day. <laughs> well, we appreciate that you took the time to come sit here with us for you a little while. You did let me come out of the office, so thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, and, and go forth and prosper. Thank always. you, Kelly. You bet. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Easy Underground or on our website, thespeakeasypodcast.com. Criticism. I really just don't want to hear it. 
I know, particularly when it's ill-informed or unkind. Unkind is kind of the worst, but sometimes it may be good for us. Yeah, and learning to listen with grace is a pretty powerful skill. So that's what we're talking about next time. Cheers. Cheers.